The Tom Woods Show, episode 1720. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody, tell me if this sounds like you. You're debating healthcare with your interventionist friends, and you just can't seem to hold your own. They immediately claim the moral high ground, and you just don't know how to respond. Well, check out my free ebook, Your Facebook Friends Are Wrong About Healthcare, and you will be shocked. Yes, even you, a veteran libertarian, will be shocked at just how solid the libertarian position is. Pick it up for free at yourfriendsarewrong.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Delighted to be joined today by the newly elected chair of the Libertarian National Committee, Joe Bishop Henchman. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Great to be here. All right. I Normally, I give the full background of the guest, but I thought in this case, I would just ask you, tell me about, we'll get to the the philosophical journey that maybe you've taken over the course of your life, but what's the maybe libertarian career path that's led you to this point? Oh, gosh. Well, when I was a kid, I was a rabble rouser. We had a lot of good political debates in the in the early 90s, mid 90s in San Diego, uh, including a curfew law that they passed on teenagers. And I didn't really like it. I was a teenager at the time. And so a bunch of us got together and protested it. And we were pretty innovative in our protests. We picked kind of the strategic street corners uh, where we knew we would get some attention. We protested in front of the mayor's office and got quite a bit of little news coverage. And actually MTV came out and did a bit of a documentary on it. And that was my first media appearance at the age of uh, 16 on MTV News back when they did news. And then, uh, well, they ended up having to add a First Amendment exception to the law. So you can be out after curfew, and that still applies today. You can be out after curfew if you're protesting, if you're demonstrating something. And so we, we, we shifted gears and we started handing out repeal the curfew stickers to teenagers who wanted to be out late because that way they're protesting and, and they can stay out late. And uh, well, we, I mean, San Diego had a very active libertarian party at the time and got involved in uh, fighting the public funding of the convention center expansion, public funding of uh, the stadium and, and bailing that out and all of that. And then went up to college at Berkeley and Berkeley radicalizes everything. If you show up as a conservative, you leave as a radical conservative. If you show up as a liberal, you leave as a radical liberal. And you show up as a libertarian, you leave as a radical libertarian. And uh, ended up being a president of the Cal Libertarians there. And it's just a, an amazing time spreading the word and helping uh, tell people what's going on. Uh, that was when we went into Afghanistan and Iraq. So uh, there was a lot of opportunity for debate and coalition building and, and uh, warning what was, what was happening and what was coming. And uh, after graduating, I, uh, I spent a year in California politics, helped recall Governor Davis of California, worked a bit on a gubernatorial campaign. That was my first campaign experience, and then moved east to D.C. and got involved in the policy world and did a bit of transportation policy, went to law school, got a law degree, and then dove right into constitutional and tax law, which is what I've been doing for about 15 years, battling the IRS and state tax authorities, getting bad tax laws repealed, reducing them, saving taxpayers, probably about $2 billion a year in the work that I've been doing. Tell me a bit about the Tax Foundation. Yeah. So I'm not there anymore, but I was there. I helped build up their legal and state policy programs, great organization. The The basic goal was to uh, 
create a competitiveness as a lodestar to evaluating tax policies. Right now, especially people on the left, they talk about progressivity of the tax code as the only thing that matters or the revenue collected is the only thing that matters. We wanted to add competitiveness as part of that debate and so created a lot of metrics and things to evaluate tax policy proposals against. So uh, this is a bad idea because it's going to make your state less competitive, so don't do it. And uh, it was pretty effective. I left there uh, a couple of years ago. It's, I did a bit of time in private practice doing my billable hours. And then uh, now I'm at National Taxpayers Union Foundation, where I'm setting up a litigation program where uh, basically I'm going to spend all my time suing the IRS and state tax authorities and making their lives miserable. Well, how about that? That's uh, turning the tables. Were you ever politically involved in any other party? You went straight to the Libertarian Party? Right, yeah. Um, I mean, when I was 11, I guess, I uh, got a little swept up in the Ross Perot stuff because uh, it was something different and it was something new. And so out there somewhere is a video of me when Ross Perot dropped out, asking him not to drop out, uh, 11-year-old me asking him that. But uh, uh, I pretty quickly found the Libertarian Party after that. And actually, uh, we... I now have the the database. I have my file. <laughs> Libertarian Party, you know, if you've ever donated to the Libertarian Party, it has uh, what day you donated and how much you donated. And I, I gave $5 in uh, August of, of 92. So I guess that's uh, that's when I joined, or at least oh, when I started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, but now wait a minute. If you were 11 during Perot, does that mean, do you mind telling me how old you are? I am 39 right now. Okay, so you are a young whippersnapper then. Okay. I, I guess, yeah. Although uh, compared to a lot of the people joining the party nowadays, I'm a I'm an old hand. Well, that's true. Yeah, you and I are mm-hmm. oldsters compared to those people. But boy, as I you know, I just turned 48 uh, at the beginning of this month, and it's you know you you get to sense really how old you are when you realize that you're going to concerts where the people performing are younger than you, <laughs> and, <laughs> and now the chairman of the Libertarian Party is younger than I. Okay, well, it's bound to happen. Well, I love the age I'm in. It's this, you know, this Oregon Trail straddling generation between uh, X and the millennials. And, you know, I know how to use the internet, but, uh, I, you know, I didn't grow up with it. So I kind of have a foot in both worlds. And I think that allows me to talk to, to different groups of people. And so, I, yeah. I love being, being the age I was. I am. Yeah, so. I, I do too. And I actually am kind of glad that I lived in a world without the internet because <laughs> then it allows me to actually experience wonder and amazement at the extraordinary things that are at my fingertips. And I try to instill that in my children who have lived with the internet their whole lives. <laughs> I want them to understand these are extraordinary miracles that you're experiencing. And you know, sometimes I get through them, sometimes I don't. So Yeah, I guess I had my, like, I'm an old man moment recently where I was just describing to somebody, look, there was a time when people would, like, I would disagree with somebody over whether something was true or not, and we just wouldn't know. We wouldn't be able to find the answer. Yeah, uh, yeah. We would just kind of have to leave it at that. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Or, I, you know, I'll, hear, I'll never forget. Heard a song and wanting to know what the song was and just not knowing for and years. There's, and there's no way. There, How could you? Yeah. yeah, there was no way to know. My, my college roommate, and I, I don't know why we get into this debate. We get into a debate about, he was claiming that the city of Budapest was actually two cities. It was, he's saying it's Buda and Pest. And I said, what are you, what's the matter with you? Are you crazy? So there was no way to resolve that within three seconds. Yeah. And the main libraries were closed. We had to walk like a mile to get to this other <laughs> library and dig the thing. Of course, I'm wrong. It turns, <laughs> turns out I went to all that trouble. Actually, I think it was, I think you might be, I think it was three cities at one point. Oh, d- doggone it. I'm going to track that guy yeah. down if that turns out to be the case. <laughs> now he owes me a pizza. Right. 
All right, anyway, so so you started off with that. I, I like your initial story and the fact we wound up on MTV. Kurt Loder, they, they used to say, was a libertarian. Yeah. And then I just had Adam Curry on my show, and he seems oh, like sure. a pretty good guy. Yeah. No, it was a great news. I mean, it was a great, great stuff. I mean, they changed their format all the time. I mean, this is before my time, but I understand that it used to be all just music videos. But, yes, you know. yes. And <laughs> so this is why it's nice to have the elder person on the program here, namely myself, uh, because I do remember that when it was only videos. Yeah. And I, well, I, I remember when Bravo that. was like opera and, and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> You see, not see. No, look now. When we have conversations like this, now we are sounding like old men. I remember when on MTV they used to. All right, so let's talk about philosophy then. You started yes. off with you know pretty sound. It sounds to me, you know, with this the the curfew issue and stuff. Um, but libertarianism demands a lot of you. I mean, there are some things a lot of people can agree on when it comes to let's say privacy and civil liberties and the police. There are a lot of people of goodwill you know, across the ideological spectrum who can say the libertarians are, are on solid ground here. But, the, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that can be pretty tough medicine in, in what we believe that are hard for a lot of people to believe. How did you go from that, you know, that kind of teenage instinct about, about something to the whole worldview? Yeah. You know, I got asked this question quite a bit on the, on the campaign for chair of kind of how did you become a libertarian? Libertarians always want to know how did, how did you become a libertarian? It's everybody always has fascinating stories on it. Mine, you know, in retrospect, looking back, it was this moment when I was a kid, um, and this is before, you know, all the stuff that we just talked about, of when um, a couple across the street had to move away. This is the, the Johnsons, who were an elderly African-American couple, retirees, and they were just kind of everybody's babysitters in the neighborhood. The nice old couple always had the best Halloween candy and, and uh, just a great two people. And um, one day they had to move. They didn't want to move, but they had to. And what was going on, I learned later, uh, was they were building a new highway, expressway nearby, and uh, they needed to seize their house for the grading down uh, into the canyon where the highway was. And so they said, you know, move, get out. And so we said our sad goodbyes, and they moved away, and, and the neighborhood kind of went down after that because um, they, they, they were kind of the glue that held a lot of it together. And... Uh, then they rerouted the highway, and uh, they didn't need to build. They didn't. Uh, <laughs> the whole thing was pointless. They didn't. They didn't need to seize the house. And I looked on Google Maps recently, and uh, it's still an empty lot to this day, full oh. of you know, weeds and all this stuff. And I think at that young age, I first thought the people in charge don't really seem to know what they're doing. And that was. I, I think it all kind of goes back to that, where because ever since then, I've had this skepticism that the person in charge because they're in charge knows what they're doing and everything's kind of sprung from that. And, you know, I guess that's kind of anti-establishment or whatever, but it's, it's not like I know they're doing, they don't know what they're doing. It's just, I'm, I don't take stuff at face value that they know what they're doing. I want to see the proof in the pudding and I wanted to be able to know enough to ask questions to get that proof in the pudding. So, you know, go to local government uh, hearings and, and, you know, send stuff asking questions and send letters. This is all before the internet. So, uh, you know, I'm one of the libertarians who, you know, we were just talking about this, but who, who basically developed my libertarian views on my own and whatever I could, you know, books I could buy, stuff I could get in the mail. And uh, it was kind of developed from there. And uh, in 1996, Harry Brown ran for president as the libertarian uh, candidate and then the nominee. And he put out a book called Why Government Doesn't Work. And 
you know, different people, different libertarian texts speak to different people. Uh, that that happened to be the one that spoke to me. It's very uh, organized, policy specific, lots of charts and facts and talking points, and and uh, I just ate it up. I love that, and uh, you know, there was no really no turning back after that point. Yeah, you know, I'm. I never got to meet him, but I'm quite fond of of Harry Brown and his speaking style and his persuasive abilities are very, very impressive. It's interesting that the story you tell about the eminent domain case, because isn't it interesting how these formative episodes in our lives that to some people will seem just like anecdotes, but to us, they, they really shaped our thinking in important ways. It helps to account for, I think, a lot of the political division in the country is that we're talking to people who had completely different formative experiences that led them to draw certain conclusions about how how the world works. And it's not that they they read books about policy and then they just drew the appropriate conclusion. It's that some visceral thing happened. You know, I mean, maybe maybe their father was a union worker and the the company really screwed him. And so that, that influences the way they think about the economy, business, labor unions, just from these experiences. And so I think there's some lesson in here about how we most effectively try to persuade people. Sometimes it isn't with that that book of facts and the charts, even though I think the way you and I want to argue is precisely that way. Right. No, it's it's definitely the stories because, you know, I've been turning the tables recently and asking libertarians how they became libertarians. And it seems like almost everybody's got some formative story. You know, something happened and then they started thinking and looking more deeply and and then they're here. But that that something happening, um, you know, it's it's lightning in a bottle. We got to figure out how to make more of it. All right, let me ask you a big picture question. How would you describe your vision for the Libertarian Party? Uh, to win. You know, there's a lot of great Libertarian organizations out there, and I've been in Washington D.C. 15 years. I'm based in Washington D.C., but I spend all my time in the states because I, I work on state tax policy. So I'm going all over the country to state capitals and everything. But so, uh, short story. I've 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 probably interacted with every libertarian organization. I've done coalition projects with them. I've done joint projects with them, or I've been alongside them as they work for something, and or I've been on their board, or you know whatever it is. I, I've been out there, and about all those libertarian organizations, which all which many of them do great work, Libertarian Party is the only one dedicated to electing and reelecting libertarians to public office. If we don't do it, it's not getting done. So that's what I want to make our focus. It doesn't de-emphasize the educational aspects of what we do. It doesn't de-emphasize the uh, membership cohesiveness aspect of what we do, because uh, there's a big reason why people want to be in the Libertarian Party. But I do want to make a major priority the electing people to public office, because only we can do that. And a lot of that just takes building up the party's infrastructure, making sure that we have effective door knocking and phone banking programs, candidate training, campaign training, treasurer training, um, identifying candidates, identifying opportunities, being innovative with our marketing to overcome media bias and fundraising disadvantages, and and getting people elected. And, you know, we have this stereotype of ourselves that we don't win, which is not true. We've got hundreds of local elected officials, and we're working very hard to elect state legislators this year in 2020. Um, So hopefully we can make inroads pushing back against that stereotype. But it's also because we don't really highlight our elected officials very effectively. 
we've got an elected official out in California uh, named Jeff Hewitt. He's uh, on the Riverside County Board of Supervisors, which um, if you're not from California, county supervisors are, are kings. They are, are powerful entities. They control health, welfare, and, and a lot of education spending too. And uh, it's a board of five um, for a county of, of over a million people. And so he's on there. There's a Democrat and three Republicans and the Democrats alone. And he's able to, to you know, drink with him and, and find their areas of common agreement and, and where they can agree, they just need one more and whatever they do is law. And it's something we libertarians often forget is that libertarians are natural coalition builders because we understand the left in a way the right never will. And we understand the right in a way the left never will. And if you insert a libertarian into a, like a board of five or a school board or city council or Congress, it dramatically changes the, the tenor of the debate and the focus, uh, you know, where the median policy ends up. And this is kind of, it's, it's partly, you know, a, a life's wish for me because I want to see libertarian public policy happen. And this is how we make it happen. But it's also partly selfish in that, I go out and work for better tax policy at the state level. And so I'm basically working with Republicans and Democrats to do libertarian things. And my life would be a whole lot easier if there was even one libertarian at that legislative negotiating table. All right. Let me ask you then the million dollar question. I used to think when I was younger and, and fresher in, in all this that that a lot of libertarian that a lot of Americans were natural libertarians, but mm-hmm. they hadn't been exposed to our ideas because right. I had so many experiences of people saying, you know, I I listened to your talk or I read your book or I I heard you on the radio, and I never thought about things that way before, and then that led me to read this book and that book, and now I'm fully on board. And I I don't blame people because it's not like there was a libertarian lesson in school that they just right. slept through. It's that they just never had a chance to hear us. As I've gotten older, I've thought that's still true. Definitely more people would be interested in and sympathetic to what we're saying if they had a real chance to hear it in a way that's not a caricature. But I think maybe it's not as many as I thought. So how do we win in a country that is frankly not libertarian? Well, this isn't the first time libertarians have faced that challenge. After World War II, which, you know, between the Great Depression and World War II, it's about as a low point as a libertarian could get. Yeah. Uh, You know, again, before my time, before your time. But, uh, you know, I've read a lot of stuff of the writings and the books by classical liberals and libertarians and and people, uh, you know, in in that side of things um, from that time. And it was, I mean, it was a scary time. I mean, this is where Road to Serfdom came, which was basically a a warning of like the steps to authoritarianism that have happened in all of these countries and is about to happen in America. I mean, that was the, the, the tenor of that. And uh, a lot of the attitude of that time from, you know, people who founded the Institute for Humane Studies or, or the Mont Pelerin Society or all the, the groups that kind of came out of, of that era um, was we're trying to keep the lights on for these ideas. And man, if we could just produce the book and get that out there or the film strip or the something and we'd be able to turn this right around. And so that's why you saw a lot of these stuff like the Constitution of Liberty or Atlas Shrugged or a lot of these giant kind of all explaining volumes that came out of that era. And well, as you said, they, they were certainly influential for a lot of people. I, I like both of those books and, and, and many of the others that came out of that era but they didn't exactly turn the tide completely. And, uh, 
you know, I think everybody's looking for that silver bullet. It's it's natural to want to see that. And for the Libertarian Party, we're 49 years old and we're still in startup mode. So it's easy to want to try to look for the silver bullet that will uh, do, every, you know, the Super Bowl ad that will change America or, uh, you know, the speech that if we can just get every American to see it, it will it will change America. I'm much more sanguine about it. I think it's it's much more uh, of a slow burn and a strategic approach. I want to see a caucus of libertarian senators because I think if we play it right, you know, eight or nine libertarians in the United States Senate can essentially control the legislative calendar and decide what passes and what doesn't through careful use of coalitions. And so how do you get eight or nine libertarian senators? Well, you get a couple dozen libertarian members of Congress. And how do you get that? You got to build up a farm team of local and state elected libertarians. And in order to get that, it's the stuff I was talking about earlier. You got to whip fundraising into shape. You got to whip uh, training, you know, get a lot of people trained, get a lot of people with experience and all of that. So it's a thousand little things that will build collectively on themselves over time and compound and snowball and, you know, all these terms that people overuse in marketing and the business world. But that's how we get there. And you know, I don't know how many libertarians there are out there in the world. Um, depending on the survey you look at, it, it can be somewhere between, you know, zero. Uh, you know, there are some people who think libertarians don't exist. And then maybe as many as 70 million. Um, if you, you know, if you're asking people, you know, where you stand on some of these issues and, and they generally align with us. So whatever the number is, um, they're not voting libertarian right now. They're not running for libertarian office. They're not being members of the party. It's, it's a tiny percentage of, the, of, of those numbers. And uh, I want to be able to build up a party that people are proud to join and vote for and, and support. Hey, everybody, let's take a quick moment to thank our brand new sponsor, Lucy Nicotine. Lucy Nicotine is a company founded by Caltech scientists and former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Lucy also has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine in cherry ice flavor, and each and every flavor actually tastes great, and it's convenient and discreet. You can enjoy their products anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, even in the gym. I have a friend I've known since graduate school who has smoked like crazy and is really, really committed to stopping, but hasn't had a lot of luck, and I feel pretty confident that when I discreetly mention Lucy Nicotine to him, that it's going to do him some good. Remember that resolution you made on January 1st, 2020. Get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy Nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple. You don't even have to leave your house. And Tom Woods Show listeners, go to lucy.co and use promo code WOODS to get 20% off all products, including gum or lozenges. That's lucy.co and use promo code WOODS at checkout. Also, I have to give this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. lucy.co and be sure to use that promo code WOODS. I want to talk about one of the criticisms libertarians get that I actually think is not fair, and that is that we are especially prone to infighting. Now, we have plenty of infighting, as I'm, you know, as you can't help but be aware, but I don't think that's unique to us. I mean, if I look at the Democrats and Republicans, I see parties that are rife with infighting. If right. I, I bet if I went and uh, surveyed, let's say, the, the current state of Marxism, 
I would find that there are internal divisions within Marxism that I couldn't even tell the difference between, <laughs> but they're not talking to each other. There's, so, do, you know, do you think two I'm, strands of, of, there's two, there's a bunch of different socialist parties in the United States, all tiny, with tiny membership. And I mean, one of them, the reason they're split off is because of a disagreement over whether or not to support the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Oh, um, good like, so that's, that's how long their, their grudges are going back on that side of the aisle. But yeah, I would agree with you. Okay. All right. So that's good. So it's, uh, so that's, that's what, one thing I've been trying to say to make libertarians not feel so bad about themselves. This is not a libertarian thing. It's just a human thing, apparently. And, and these, I mean, these are not, you know, tiny issues that we're, we're fighting about. We're not debating about who was right about something that happened in 1956. We're, uh, the disagreements and discussions we have in the party are about strategic direction and, and tactics and, um, you know, what, what, how do we best achieve our shared vision? I welcome those discussions. You know, I don't, I don't like it when it gets personal or, or you know, stuff gets dredged up or stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, if it's focused on, on some of that stuff, I mean, those are the kinds of discussions that I want to see happen. And I'm going to be trying to steer the National Committee to actually be having more of those types of strategic direction discussions because I, I think they need to be aired. And I think we need, you know, whatever we decide to do, it needs to be fully informed with all understanding of, of what we're trying to do. And, you know, I guess it's more public for us because, uh, you know, I guess libertarians don't really hold back in, in, in ways. We're certainly not as scripted as the Democrats and Republicans are. And, you know, I don't know if you saw any of the of the Democratic convention last week, or if you're going to see any of the Republican convention this week, but I mean, there's not going to be a hair out of place on, on those conventions. And, you know, I get pushback already, you know, I wasn't chair at the time, but you know, the, of incidents that happen at our national convention as reasons why, you know, libertarians aren't serious or aren't professional. And, you know, uh, it's not my favorite thing that, that some of these things have happened in, in public view and, and maybe turn people off of, of looking at us as this, this crazy bunch of people, but we're not scripted. And, you know, I, I don't make any bones about that. Our delegates, when they show up to convention, are fully empowered to set the direction of the party. And they're not reading off a script. And same too with our membership. And I mean, if you're a member of the Libertarian Party, you have as much say as any other member in the direction that the party goes. And it's that way for a reason, because we want to be different than the other two political parties. Uh, our basis is in our principles and in our decentralization. So, you know, democratic power brokers may decide, you know, well, we don't want this person on stage or we don't want this person to win and all of that. And, and the Republicans can try to do that too. But and libertarians, uh, it's, it, it, it's, not with, it's not within my power, certainly as chair, nor any other uh, leader in the libertarian party. Well, as we wrap up today, let me close with this question. What do you think you can do as chair to heal some of the divisions in the party? Now, of course, it's natural to have divisions in the party, and it's probably a good thing because not everybody is going to have all the right ideas about everything, particularly when it comes to strategy, and we really do need to hash this out. But sometimes it's gone really too far. People have been demonized, groups have been demonized, and it's been unhealthy. How can we, how can we fix that? Yeah, no, and you know, I've been certainly subject to it too. Anybody who kind of sticks their neck out uh, in the past has, I think, experienced some of it, and that's unfortunate. It's a shame. It kind of rolls off my back because, well, I've been across from a 
team of IRS lawyers giving me a deposition for a whole day in front of them, every sheet of paper I've ever given to the federal government and them asking me questions about it. So that was probably the scariest and and most annoying day of my life. Um, And so anything else compared to that is is nothing. Um, What I can do as chair uh, primarily is set a good example. So, uh, you know, I didn't go negative in my campaign. I'm not, uh, you know, it's just not my style. I don't go on Jeremiah's on on Facebook and Twitter. I used to bill by the hour, so I just don't really feel like I have time for that kind of stuff. <laughs> and you know what you're going to hear from me is a lot of talk about strategy and execution and and how best to to do those things. And there is a perception out there, or a, con- a conception rather, of the LNC chair as the grand poobah of libertarianism, responsible for articulating you know the official position, so to speak. I'm going to do my best to resist that narrative, that typecasting, because I honestly think it's up to our candidates and our affiliates and our our party uh, leadership at the local and state levels to really answer those questions. Because, um, you know, when I ran for local office here in D.C., I ran for D.C. Attorney General, I picked three issues that uh, I thought spoke to the electorate here on expanding our school choice and holding our leaders of our metro system accountable and getting obstacles out of the way of public housing. Um, all I, you know, certainly in line with with what libertarians view in trying to get smaller government, um, but issues that speak to the residents of the District of Columbia uh, for people thinking about who to vote for for attorney general. Certainly wouldn't be the same issues that I would pick if I was helping somebody running, say, for school board in Oklahoma or uh, some other race. And we have to understand that. And the National Party has a role in kind of providing basic talking points and information that people can use. But in terms of what people stand up and say, they got to decide that for themselves. And what's more libertarian than that? Well, fair enough. So as we wrap up, what would be your appeal to people who, let's say, you know, they're, they're libertarians and they believe in non-aggression, but they haven't, they haven't taken the step of joining the party. Why should they do that? Well, you know, this November 3rd, there's going to be three names on every ballot in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And, you know, one of them is going to be Joe Biden. And Joe's been in politics for 47 years. Uh, there's no surprises with him. Uh, we know where he's stood on the drug war and, and wars overseas and the size of government and all of that. And that's, that's what you're going to get more of uh, if he gets in as president. And then, of course, he's picked as a running mate, somebody who's got a very... Uh, clear record in terms of government involvement in enforcing victimless crimes and and affecting the lives of children and other families and families. And then, of course, with, with Donald Trump and, and Mike Pence, uh, their record's pretty clear about what, what they're out to achieve. Um, and so, you know, you get four more years of that. No change, really, from either of those directions. And then the third name on the ballot, uh, Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen, Libertarian Party, were for personal empowerment. We're for getting government out of these things, bringing the troops home, ending the drug war, actually achieving real criminal justice reform. And more broadly than that, freedom, innovation, privacy, justice, peace. So if that's, it, it really comes down to the direction that, that people want the country to go. And uh, that's what we're offering. And, and like those libertarians back in the day, keeping the lights on, right now we're making sure there's a choice on the ballot for people that don't want to endorse with their vote the two major parties. 
And ultimately, with some hard work, we're going to get to the point where we've got libertarians able to have a seat at the table for all of these policy discussions. Because you can argue on Facebook till you know your your hands bleed, and you can fight on Twitter and and win all these debates, but lose the actual impact. You know, I've been out there getting laws passed and helping change tax policy for the better. There's definitely room for us. There's definitely opportunities for us. And that's what I'm out to achieve. So uh, I'm certainly looking for support for that initiative wherever I can find it. Well, the website is lp.org. And Joe, uh, thanks for your time today and best of luck in what is probably a fulfilling job, but maybe at other times a thankless job. So, and it's an uncompensated job. So, yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, Tom. And thank you for having me on today. All right, everybody, that's our episode for today. Tomorrow on the program, our old friend Rob Wolf, all the way back from episode 29, two time New York Times bestselling author, joins us to talk about his brand new book, Sacred Cow The Case for Better Meat Why Well Raised Meat is Good for You and Good for the Planet. So be sure to subscribe to The Tom Woods Show over at tomwoods.com slash apple, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.